Right, welcome back to the podcast, the Steve Sully Study. I'm at my second home in Mayfair, Woodbury House Art Gallery. I've got a great guest in front of me. I get asked as a podcaster this question a lot, a lot. Right. Who is, Steve, the most famous person you have ever interviewed? And my answer is always the same. It depends. It depends on what you're, ref- what you're, what you're pegging it against. So if you talk about boxing, it could be George Groves, it could be Mick Condon, it could be Harlem Eubank. If we're talking about footballers, it could be Sean Mike Phillips, it could be Anton Fernand, it could be Kieran Richardson. If you're talking about the film world, it could be Tamara Hussain, and the list goes on. I would say in the business world, you're very famous. <laughs> yeah? Maybe not in the public domain worlds, like if you walk down the street, maybe to the right people, but yeah. certainly in the business world your brand your name is is quite famous so i want to introduce you mr dean forbes thank you for your time and i'm really looking forward to this conversation good to be here good to be here steve cool what do you think about the gallery first and foremost oh it's beautiful it's my first time here um it's the kind of art that is you know right up my street we were talking before about the kind of art that i'm into uh yeah beautiful place beautiful space Nice, uh, nice pieces. I gave you a small little sales pitch mm. on Black the Rat, the guy that we're just about to, to launch. First show he's done in the UK in over 10 years, and also he's the guy that inspired Banksy. Right. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, loved it. Been a big fan of Banksy, and as soon as you walk in and see the stuff, it's got, you know, it's got that hallmark, uh, hallmark to it. So, yeah, yeah ma- massive fan. But like I was saying to you, Jody Morris actually got me into... I know Jody. Uh, yeah. Harlan Miller, so I bought a, a bunch of... Uh, Harlan Millers, some of them are in the house, some of them are in storage. So that's that's more been uh, what I've been investing in. Yeah, this is uh, all Richard Hamilton around here, so I'll give you a separate sales presentation on that <laughs> later on. So where shall I begin? I'm going to begin by saying this. Um, I got this headline from Spears, and it was a recent article on the 10th of November 2022. You probably know what it is. Inverted commas, homeless to 1 billion euro CEO. How Dean Forbes figured out success. What does that mean? Uh, it means what it says, you know, in uh, 1997, we lost our house for the second time, right? So my family were homeless twice. Uh, in 97, 98, it was the second time we lost our home. And on February 28th, 2000, uh, 2022, uh, we sold the company I was CEO, CEO of and shareholder in uh, for a billion euros. So <laughs> the headline means, you know, 97 to 2022, homeless to a billion euro exit. It's impressive stuff. So you you were really, at one stage, you personally was homeless. Yeah, yeah. That that time, um, when, we, when we lost our home that time, uh, there was me and my two brothers and... Uh, it kind of broke up the family because in order for my mum and brothers to be rehoused, it was easier if there was three of them instead of four of us. So I went my own way. Um, I was in a hostel. They went into a hostel. And yeah, we were we were homeless. And what did you learn about being homeless back then? Yeah, the, the funny thing is, and, a, and like a lot of my early experiences at the time, right, the way the way we grew up without a lot of money, kind of single, single home, uh, single parent family, a lot of stuff happening around us on the estate, a lot of trauma in the family. It's only now as an adult I look back and I think, wow, that was that, that was really, really bad. At the time, I was just conditioned to get through the next day. So we lost our home. It was a little bit like, you know, that sucks a bit. I've got going to a hostel now, but you just like conditioned to get on with it. So I wasn't, I didn't spend like days sat worried and angry and upset about it. It was just like, right, this is the new thing I've got to deal with. Yeah. So I'm um, listening to a few of the other interviews, podcasts that you've done over the last couple of years. Um, I didn't realise, but now it makes sense, that you were pursuing a football career. Mm. And unfortunately, but also fortunately, you didn't become best a... Thing, best thing that ever happened. Yeah, not, a, not becoming a footballer yeah. is the best thing that ever happened. So you was at Crystal Palace, am I right in saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, do you ever regret not becoming not a Premiership footballer? Not at all. Why? Not at all. I, I don't think I would ever have become a, uh, a Premier League footballer. I, you know, I was okay, I was good. I don't think I would ever played like at the top level. And frankly, I've done much better financially in the business world than I think I ever would have done in football. Yeah. So, so I don't regret it. The best thing was failing early. 
actually, at football. Because I had friends who came out of the game at 27, 28, and now you've got to start your career at 28 and you've got a girlfriend and kids. When I failed at like 17, 18, I could start life. So I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. What you learned in football, though, as an athlete, mm. to where you are right now, coming out of three or four companies, big exits, transferable mindset, skills, traits. Tell me about that. De- yeah, de- definitely. But again, at the time, when I was 17, like playing football, it was just having a good time. Right? You, you're training with your mates every day. You're having it. For me, I was having a laugh. I was the king of banter. Like I'm a very funny guy. Everyone will tell you. Um, so, so I wasn't, I wasn't as committed to it as some of my friends were and they went on and got the careers their commitment deserved. Later in life, looking back, yeah, I, I learned the value of preparation. I learned the value of living the discipline in order to get the outcome. Uh, I learned the value of hard work. Uh, I learned the value of having a good team and what a good team looks like and what you can achieve with a good team versus what can happen to a a good team when one bad person or one person who doesn't fit enters that team. So tons of uh, tons of transferable skills. I would say the main one is in sport, and we were talking about this before. It's kind of the the only thing that counts is the victory. Right. And that, I think, has been really helpful for me in business, that the only thing that counts is the outcome we came for. Uh, yeah. I, um, I gave you a story earlier, um, and I, I, I'm a big believer, you probably are, of the law of attraction. Law of attraction, in my opinion, doesn't work unless you go out there and work. But first and foremost, you need to have the vision, you need to have the belief, you need to have the feel-good factor, you need to work really hard, you need to have the strategy. And then with right. all those things combined, it does happen. And I remember running past, which I believe at the time was your house, and I saw two cars and it had, I think, from memory, one was a black Aventador and I think one was a Rolls-Royce Wraith. You don't have to confirm or not. And on the number plate, it said Forbes. And I never knew who'd lived in this house. And I thought, that guy or that family is destined to become, be a success because of their, their surname. I literally thought that you must be something to do with the big brand, Forbes. And I thought, anyone's got a surname which is Bloomberg, Forbes, or something like that, he's going to be a success. And I thought, one day I'm going to see you. And I nodded at you a couple of times. Right. And then then I, I told Chris's story. So I've got a gym in my house. And uh, well, in, I built this big outhouse in, in the garden. And anyway, I typically go in there. Before I start my, my session, I've got two TVs. But one TV on, which is silent, and it's normally I put um, I have a, a mansion where a guy's walking around the mansion, and it's just visual. I'm watching it, and right. then I have a podcast on, so I've got the two two going. Right. I'd be lifting my weights and stuff. Right. Anyway, as I was looking for a podcast, this this suggested podcast come up. I, I fucking recognise that guy, <laughs> and I thought, I swear that's a that guy listening. <laughs> so anyway, as I plugged, pushed it, it was you. Okay, I was like. That's mad. Like I did, because mm. I knew you must have been as successful where you live in the cars you got, but I never knew your background. And right. that's when I started sort of looking into you a bit more. And you, were, right. you were very, very inspiring. And then my friend Kieran Richardson, I saw there was a post and it was you and him. Yeah, yeah. Then I saw Rio, who yeah. obviously lives in, in the same area. And I thought, this guy must be very, very connected because he kind of <laughs> knows all like the really, really important people. Then I saw a picture with you and Dumi from... Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, disturbing uh, London. Disturbing, yeah. you know, knowing no tiny, etc. And I just thought, bloody hell, this guy is almost, in my mind, has come out of nowhere, but really <laughs> behind the scenes, you've been becoming uber, uber successful and you've got this really good network. So mm. the long-winded exp- thing what I'm trying to get to is network. Mm. How important is it to have really, really solid people around you and have r- a real good network? It's It's... I think I said this recently, I would attribute the vast majority of what I consider to be the best things I've achieved to the people that have been in my life. And when I look at moments in my life when it wasn't going so well, the quality of people around me was lower. The times when things have been going well, the quality of people has been higher. And you just mentioned a bunch of like super, extremely successful, brilliant and well-known and famous people but when I, and they are high quality people, but when I say high quality people around you, it doesn't always have to be, you know, at that status because my close friend network who, the majority of which aren't well known, are equally important and equally kind of 
like valuable to me in like pushing you, helping you, supporting you. So yeah, like the, the network and quality of company you keep is a direct correlation to what you can achieve, uh, you expect to achieve in life. Would you define yourself, would you describe yourself as an alpha male? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As an alpha male then, the blessing and curse with that, I mean, I certainly found it in my earlier part of my life. Now I'm 37, I'm a bit more grown up and I'm a mm. bit more realistic with myself that I can't do everything, even mm -hmm. if I'm very, very positive about it. So yeah, I do need help. But the blessing and curse being an alpha type male, a leader, CEO, mm. is knowing the right time to get help. How do you define that? How do you how do you how do you recognise that those those moments? That, that's a that's a really good um a good question a good point right and for me, people sometimes confuse being alpha with you you're a leader and therefore you have all of the answers and therefore you know everything and therefore you know you don't need anybody else like you you only choose to have people but but you don't need anybody else, and I think that's nonsense. So as an alpha, I'm quite a secure person. I, I, I know what I'm good at, and part of that security is also knowing what I'm not good at and admitting what I'm not good at. Mm. And I think that's important because because I know what I'm not good at, I very rarely, if ever, get exposed in situations where I'm not good at something, right? So, you know, I, I know I'm not good at tapping into people's kind of emotional equity. That's just not my personality. I'm not good at some of the arm round the shoulder management that's sometimes necessary as a leader, as a CEO. Sometimes people need, they need a bit more of emotional leadership, right? I know that's not my strength. So when I have people on the team who need that, I know in my team, I need people who are good at that. And I know well enough to say, so-and-so needs a bit of support. I think this is one for you. You need to go in and do that. The reverse of that is I go do it. I'm clumsy with it because it's not natural to me. I'm not very good at it. And you make the person feel worse because it's not my forte, right? So my alpha and me being good or trying to be good at leading, part of that is my security and individual awareness to make me go, I'm not good at these things. I better go get help or find other people who are who are good at those. Yeah. So it, it, I'm just trying to take a wild guess here then, yeah? I feel like, show my business partner's not here today because I feel like you and him have got very, very similar attributes and, and characteristics. Um, both very, very good at business, but maybe there is the other element of it where everyone's obviously got their weak points. Would you say, have you ever been described as a bit emotionless? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bit, a bit cold. You know, I, I, I like, I like numbers. I like outcomes. I like results. Processes. I like processes. I like commitment. I like accountability. That's how my world works. But I've got people on my management team who are good at relationships who are good at conversation i've got you know great guy who i work with now is my cfo he's the guy that will stay in the bar with the team until three four five a.m and like they have a great time like he's really good at that i don't i don't want to do that so i'm off to bed at 11 but we we get the team to where we need it to be because we're a good we're a good combination and i never feel exposed because people really like him like i don't feel I don't feel threatened by the fact they probably like him more than they like me because I know that he's he's good at being liked, right? So it doesn't it never it never bothers me. And I think that is an important part of being a good a good alpha, not to be threatened by those kind of things. But even the strongest alphas, even the strongest dominating people, you know, they um they, they can at you know points in their lives feel a bit you know a little bit of anxiety tiny little bit of depression not saying you're depressed but you, you kind of have moments like it mm. do you have you ever gone there and how do you pick yourself back up then all all of the time it's the con it's the when you're obsessed with winning and you're obsessed with the outcome you don't win every time mm. <laughs> you don't have you don't bring home the belt or the gold medal every single time but you would have been obsessed with it and maybe it was a six month nine month 12 month game right in the business world maybe you were pursuing something for 12 months and then it it dies and because of that uh dominant character and and obsession with winning yeah like the day after that you're or the weeks after that you're you're on the floor over time steve like i've learned i've learned i've learned the cycle and this is like you never understand this when you're, you never understand it's hard to understand when you're young people say oh you don't have the experience like you haven't got the experience and at the time you're thinking yeah but i'm good i know what i'm doing so i'll be fine the benefit of experience is 
you're running after something for 12 months, in the very back of your mind, you're going, I'm going to win. I might not. And because of experience, you go, if I don't win, I know I'm going to crash the day after. And then when you crash the day after, you're, you're saying to yourself, okay, I've lost, I've crashed, but I know I come out of it because I crashed two years ago, I crashed four years ago, I crashed five years ago, and I came out of it. So relax, right? Breathe. It, it will be all right. It's just, the, it's just the process. Whereas without experience, you can crash and you start panicking and the world is suddenly a bad place. With experience, you just kind of go, okay, all right, it's going to be all right. This is what happens. You're going through it probably two weeks, three weeks, and you come, you come out of it. Tyson Fury, I know you're a boxing fan, yeah? Mm. The first time around, he'd become heavyweight champion of the world, undisputed, hadn't been beat. Beat Klitschko in his own back garden, mm. uh, well, I think it was in Germany, and then had an almighty crash low, went into depression, mm. taking drugs, drink, and self-harm, abuse, etc. As a businessman, can you relate to what Tyson Fury went through? 100%. I mean, I never had the drink and drug uh, problem. Um, 100%. I remember we were working on a, a huge deal for me, um, selling a company. I told the story a few times. We were working on this deal. We had a lot of different offers to buy the company. They gradually fell away and I was left with one potential buyer. And I met with the guy on the other side. Um, he was making all the noises saying he was going to buy the company. And at that time, I had the option to buy more shares in the company. So I had shares. And because he was making the right noises, I thought, okay, I'm going to double down and buy even more shares. So I used like lots of my own money, you know, millions of pounds to buy more shares. Fast forward 24 hours, the deal had crumbled. And I remember sitting in the reception of the, the company that was supposed to buy us, cash poor because I'd used a lot of my money to buy shares in a privately held company, which you can't just sell again the day after. So all of our, a lot of our cash that we built up was gone. The deal had crumbled and I had to go back to my team and my family and go, okay, now this is the situation um, that we're in. And I was, I was absolutely out on my feet. I was on the floor like for, you know, for weeks uh, because of that, because I'd gone from, a lot of good things had happened, being successful, getting myself out of a difficult financial situation myself, to being in a great place. And at that moment, I was back arguably worse than I was before. And I was, <laughs> yeah, I was devastated. So was there a feeling of like embarrassment and also being vulnerable, feeling a bit guilty? What type of emotions were you I was sitting through? there saying to myself, like, how have you unwon, <laughs> right? Like, like, how were you in such a good place, CEO of this company, tons of cash in the bank, not vulnerable at all, you know, any choice, work, don't work, retire, take a year off, all choices on the table to today, you are, you know, millions of pounds of shares in a company no one wants to buy. And what are you going to tell your, like, what are you going to tell your wife when you get, when you get home? Because... Yeah, embarrassed, scared, all, yeah, all of that. How did, did the family, the, your nearest and dearest, how did they how did they treat the situation and treat you at that that moment in time? My my wife has always just like she's always just backed me. She's always just been like, well, it it will be okay, and you'll figure it out. It's just like her two <laughs> her yeah. two dominant mantras, and I guess she's been <laughs> she's been right so far. So um, I've also got another uh, title here, October 2022, JP Morgan's Powerless, and they brand you here, UK's most influential black man. Mm. Tell me more about that title. Um, it's, it's, I'm very proud of that. You know, I'm very, very, very proud of that, considering where I've come from. I've got a lot of friends on that list as well, so it's just kind of like good for the bragging rights on WhatsApp, right? To send, I send them, send that to them uh, a lot. Uh, and all, but also, um, not just for my kids, like, and we were talking about this before, something that's really important to me is relatability, right? So what kind of situations we've come from and what I saw as a kid growing up, you know, people who worked in corporates and wore suits weren't like us. Like we didn't aspire to work in big companies. Mm. 
because that meant you had to wear a suit and those environments were dominated by white people and they didn't get us and they didn't understand us. And you, so you didn't want to go and do that. So the importance of that for me is not just the title, but but still being myself and still being relatable to kids on estates like the one I came from so that they hopefully now can look at me and go, oh, being a corporate guy doesn't mean, you know, you work in a bank, you you do your top button up, you put a tie on and you go for lunch 45 minutes in the middle of the day and you have to speak differently and behave differently to how you would do normally. Like it's important to me that I meet a lot of kids who go, kids, kids young people who go, oh, like it's possible or we should, so we can be ourselves or we can't, do, do you know what I mean? And that, that is why that is mm. uh, imp important to me. Do, do you ever like, um, we were talking off air, right? You know, like, so I'm from South London, yeah? Mm -hmm. Tulse Hill, a lot of my family from Tulse Hill, uh, Crystal Palace, Dulwich, etc. yeah? There's a lot of my family from there. So I wasn't born in a council estate, but my mum and dad were, and my dad was a glazer, wheeling, dealing all the time. At, you know, back then, my mum was doing a bit clean on side. We weren't poor, but we weren't well off. We were mm -hmm. kind of just in that sort of mid middle ground. And a lot of my, my family were still in council places, etc. And obviously the drug dealers and stuff, you, you sort of had the, had the money. So we're trying to go from that environment. I, I guess I still feel it now. Like I sometimes think like I'm in this three and a half thousand square foot venue in, in Mayfair, selling millions of pounds worth of, of art. And I really enjoy it and, and everything that goes with it. But you sometimes feel a bit of a fraud. <laughs> I sometimes get that, like yeah. thinking, how, how am I here? Like, yeah. I shouldn't, I sh kind of shouldn't be here sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of talk to yourself and say, no, 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 you, you deserve to be here and come on, we push on. Do you ever get that? that I think they call it uh, imposter. Imposter syndrome. That's it. Do you ever get that? No. I, I used to early in my career. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it now for two reasons. Like, my numbers speak for themselves now. Like my my numbers are as good as, if not better than anybody else's numbers. And I actually view it the other way around. So a lot of the time when I'm doing business now and the people on the other side of the table are Oxford or Cambridge educated, come from well-off families, have had a much easier life than me. I think you you shouldn't be here. Like with your advantage in life, with your education, you have ended up doing business with or needing something from a guy who had no education, was homeless, you know, went to Crown Court when he was 17 on, on you know, on a chart. Like how, you you should be really disappointed to be here with, with me. And that's, that's how I view it now. I am, um, I, I heard a, a few podcasts, as I mentioned, and one of them said that you're the most successful uh, individual as an employee. And I thought that was kind of a quite a quite an unusual thing to, to hear because you become wildly successful, worth in the tens of millions of pounds, I'm assuming. And even though you're a business owner now, you you you, you weren't the founder, but you were employed to be the CEO and then to take it from here to here. So, um, what is the misconception about young people, especially men, thinking, oh, I need to be an owner, I need to be this this person, I need to be the founder, I need to be the business person, that's the only way I'm going to become the best version of myself and become uber successful and mm -hmm. then I can start buying all the nice stuff. Mm -hmm. Is that a misconception or could you be a really fantastic employee and become equally as successful financially? Of course, like in... Uh not in the last deal where we sold Forterra, in the deal before that, that deal probably created, I don't know, maybe 20 millionaires, employees, 20, 20 employees became millionaires. And of those 20 employees, a number of them would have reinvested into the business that they were acquired into and will become multi, multi-millionaires as a consequence. In the Fortero deal, it would have created another set of millionaires as employees. So, like there were, and, and we're not the, we and me, I'm not the only person on earth with this structure where as an employee, if things go according to plan, there's wealth creation, right? So that, that opportunity is available in hundreds of companies up and down the country. This fetish people have with ownership 
like I always think I always say people need to think that through like what what is it that turns you on about ownership because if you can't be an employee because you don't want to turn up on time for work you don't want to do a minimum of eight nine hour day you don't want to have a boss you don't want to work in an environment where there are processes and the way to do things and rules if you are as an individual cannot operate in that situation then yeah being an employee isn't a good good idea if you want to become rich and you want to make a lot of money there are lots of ways to do that as an employee but then you have to play by the rules because companies have rules and structure and those kind of things so the the ownership thing it, it isn't about wealth creation because actually most owners of businesses are not and don't become employees most businesses that start fail within the first 24 months so statistically starting a business you are more likely to fail um, then, then succeed in terms of wealth creation. So you have to think about like what, what is it that is causing me to be obsessed with being an owner, being an entrepreneur, because it's not the only way for wealth creation, and it might not even be statistically the most likely way to become um, wealthy. Okay, let's talk about your su- successes then. So um, you've had four exits. Yeah. Um, talk me through. All four of them. <laughs> uh, first one was um, Primavera. So I wasn't the CEO of Primavera. It was an American company that wanted to expand outside of America. And I joined pretty early and became responsible for the non-America's expansion, which, you know, I was really kind of fortunate. And we really built that up and it became a massive part of that business. And by the end, I was a... Um, reasonable single digit shareholder in that company and it sold to Oracle for $550 million. Um, And then I was offered a couple million dollars to stay at Oracle to do the integration of those those businesses. So that was the first. Then I was CEO of a French company um, based in Paris, software company. We grew that company and sold it to American Express. Um, uh, I'm not allowed to say that number, but that was a good, uh, you know, good, good return. Tens, hundred millions? Uh, over a hundred, uh, over a hundred million. Their, their biggest technology acquisition at the time. So it's quite a, quite a good deal. Then I was CEO of uh, an HR software company based in Ireland. Um, we grew that company and we sold that to the UK's largest privately held software company. I you know, can't say that number either, but that was bigger than the, the one before. Um, and then I went to Fortero, which is where I'm CEO now. Um, and we were able to kind of get that company, you know, attractive enough to be acquired for a billion euros, literally one year ago um, this week. So combined, all of those exits add up to two uh, two billion euros. I asked you off air. Um, I saw a number on the internet. They said that your net worth was forty million pound, and based upon them numbers, it must be that must be that must be wrong. How close? <laughs> Is that a figure to your net worth? Uh, it's not very close. <laughs> the only reason close. why I ask it is um, <laughs> me being, you know, I'm not even young anymore, but I still see myself as young. I always look at the scoreboard, which yeah, is yeah. what assets they've got, net worth, lifestyle, luxury items, etc. I know that's not the be all and end all, but let's face it, when you're a young, thriving mm business person, that's kind of the, 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 the immediate yeah. stuff that you and your family want. Yeah. Um, yeah. How important was it to you to become rich and, and wealthy? It's a journey, you know, like at the beginning, when we sold Primavera, the first thing I did was buy my mum a house, pay off our mortgage and pay off like a bunch of mortgages in the family. Cause it's just like basic need of, let's not lose our house again. You know, <laughs> like let's all of us now, none of us are gonna lose our house again. You do that, then you buy cars, and stuff that we loved when we were younger but couldn't afford. So I kind of went crazy a bit then. But it's it's like a journey, right? You, I started off just going crazy after the material. Once the mortgages were paid off and we were secure, I just went crazy for years after material stuff. Um, and then I went through a phase of like experiences where I spent lots of money on, on just outrageous experiences going to do like outrageous things. And now I... Now I keep the smallest amount of cash in my bank. Like I have the most cash I've ever had in my life. I have the most wealth I've ever had in my life by a huge amount. But I have access to the lowest amount of cash 
because I move all of my cash out. I don't want it around me. I don't keep it around me. I, I can't get to it for some cases three months, some cases longer. And I live just on a reasonable amount of cash now. So it's like full full cycle. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm intrigued, right? So you've come into this business, you know, don't really know too much about it, bar the obvious. We've got a premises in Mayfair. We promote street artists and you, you've, you've met me, met some of the team, etc. One, do you think you could scale a an art company, a, a gallery to sell it? And two, how would you, what would be the first steps in doing it? I don't, I don't think I could. If I was given that opportunity, I would. Yeah, I'd, I'd have a go at it, but it's not one I would pursue. I do think there are fundamentals in business that are quite, you know, quite transferable though, right? So first we call it the TAM. So understanding your target market, like who is the who is the intended customer for this service or product? How many of them are there? Who else is selling similar stuff to them? How much do they spend every year on that kind of stuff? And then you start to try and understand how much of that could you could you get access to, right? So I know my market grows 10% a year. So anytime my business grows less than 10% a year, I'm losing market share, right? So so those kind of things I think are transferable. Mobile phones, art, software, who's the customer? How many of them are there? How much do they sell? Who else, how much they spend? Who else is selling to them? That, you know, that kind of thing. And then competitive positioning. So, you know, that, that target customer group spends a billion a year on art like this how are we going to position this kind of art to get more of that billion than you know banksy or whoever else is it, they would normally spend that art on so i think those kind of things are transferable then it comes down to execution do i have a phone book do i know people do i have relationships do i know how to how to pitch and sell this kind of art do i know how to pitch and sell this kind of gallery well no that's that's where i wouldn't execute it well but there are some fundamentals i think which are you know, transferable. Do you think it's possible to scale uh, a, a gallery and sell it on? Um, I don't. I I actually don't. I don't know. Like it, it's a finite product, right? So at some point, you know, if this if this gallery was ten times the size, we couldn't have ten times more of these maybe right because at some point there just aren't enough of them so then there's another artist in here or other artists in here and then what does that do to the proposition like you, there's all of that kind of stuff to think about so I, I don't know but going back to what we said earlier I don't think I would be good at it so I wouldn't I wouldn't try it yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't bet my life on it so um, I heard in your in your uh, podcast that um, you mentioned the word a lot which I think is such a powerful word and it's, it's, it's something that's overlooked quite a lot which is culture when I think of a culture, the first person comes to my mind because I had the same conversation with Kieran. It's uh, Alex Ferguson. Mm. He stepped into the Man United at the start, and when he left and retired, it was a completely different beast. Mm -hmm. And the, and going looking at the scorecard again, you can right. you can tell that he enforced like a real mm. tight culture. Yep. So you normally take on take over from a from a founder, mm -hmm. and the culture might be one way. Yep. And you, you've got to try and transition the culture into another way, yep. but without disheartening the team members, right. without losing focus on the ultimate goal, etc. How the hell do you do that? Because I know your speciality is going to a failing company or yep. a company is not doing what it should be doing, not only making it great, but also selling it on. Like, yep. How do you do that? It's the, that's the hardest part because that involves hearts and minds, which might not naturally be you know, my uh, my skill set. But I, I really, really believe in the power of culture and the team. Like I, I know that that is where most of the, like most of the success comes from. Um, I'm, I'm always very clear on what the company needs to become and very clear on how the company can get there. And one of the main tools, Steve, is, is I, you know, I have been reasonably good at, explaining that to people like telling that story saying listen we are you know we're, we're going to go to mars right this this business this opportunity is about going to mars and if we do that we're all going to be you know successful because we would have been a group of people who have gone to mars and nobody's done that before and that's going to be really important and we're all going to learn different skills along the way and we're going to become better people 
as a result of this journey to Mars. And what happens then is some people go, that sounds really exciting. That sounds brilliant. Some people go, sounds dangerous, but I'm up for it. And some people go, this guy's lost his mind. Like Mars, like, well, why would we want to do that? That's dangerous. We might die. Nobody's ever done that before. What about the moon? Why don't we stay here? So first step in changing the culture is, is identifying that group who don't believe and then identifying in that group who you can convince, who you want to convince, and then who you can convince, because you might not want to. And then you're left with a core who believe in the mission, who believe in, who are turned on by trying to get, um, trying to get to Mars. And then the next thing that comes is the standards. The standards of this is how we're gonna behave, this is how we're gonna conduct ourselves, these are the values we're gonna operate against, and they're non-negotiable. They're just not negotiable. And then the next, um, the next set of kind of voting happens where people go, quite interested in going to Mars, that sounded exciting, but this guy seems intense, seems like there's gonna be a lot of work, seems quite demanding, we're used to doing this much, he wants this much, not for us. And some of them you can convince, you say, well, actually, it will be good for you to step up to this standard and they stay. Some say, I'm gonna go somewhere else where the bar uh, is a bit lower. So over time, mainly through communication, being absolutely clear on what is what is desired here and what is accepted here and what is not, over time you end up with a core who believe in it, are excited by it and willing to play by the, the commonly agreed rules. And once you've got that, you can bring new people into it, right? And when you bring new people in, you actually don't even have to govern those new people. New people like we've seen in the stories with Sir Alex, you know, you put a new egg into the Man United dressing room, it's the players who go, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we don't, we don't turn up late for training here or we don't train at 90% here or, you know, at halftime, it's the players who get on the other players who aren't doing well because the standard here is, is clear and known and high and we are all, like, playing to that standard. So, like, that combination has been the most effective way to change a culture. But what I've just described is oversimplifying, like, thousands of micro actions to shift a company from one set of behaviors to to a new it's like really really impressive because um you know i've been in a few different companies sales like the culture of sales companies they could be they could actually be settling a lot of money each month they could be hitting targets but the culture could be all over the shop yeah, yeah. you know you probably know as well as i do good sales companies certainly in, in major cities including london there's the booze, there's the drugs, there's mm -hmm. doing the stupid stuff on, on the weekends, there's kind of wanting it in a week, but then on the weekend being this t totally different person. <laughs> but then you can, you look at certain institutes, mm -hmm. they've got core salespeople and they're razor sharp. Right. They dress a certain way, right. they talk a certain way, right. they socialise in a certain way right. and they're immaculate. Right. And they're like the kind of people like, fuck, you, you want to yeah. be like them. Yeah. Like that's, that slight shift can give you totally Tons different, right. totally different outcome. Right. And I've been in companies where, as you go through the process I've just described, you lose people who behave in the way you just you just described, and sales go down, right? So as a business person, you go, well, it seems like we're going backwards. But I will always say to the team and investors, we just got to we got to keep going. And when the team are looking around, going, hold on you've let John and Brian go. They were our top salespeople. And, and I say, yeah, but they don't meet our standard here. It's very powerful because then they go, wow, he is so committed to these standards. He's willing to sacrifice revenue. And everybody goes, I think he's serious. Right? I, I think he means, same with customers. When you're communicating this and saying, on this journey, we want these kind of customers. We don't want these ones. And then the team say, yeah, but those customers pay us a lot. So yeah, but they're just not, aligned with where we're going. So we're going to let them go. And people say, it's never, it's like, what kind of businessman would he be to sacrifice customers? We, they don't. And then the organization starts to go, okay, he's serious. Like he really means this. And it, it's quite a power, like that, I don't want to call it cleansing, but that process where we redefine what we are and what we're going to become and take the hard decisions about what we won't accept is the most important part in changing the culture yeah and it takes 
a bit of balls as well, <laughs> yeah, you know, because yeah. there is that taking two steps back to take a couple of leaps forward, yeah. and sometimes only you can see it, and no one else around you can see it. Yeah. And the be- sorry, the benefit—that's where the benefit of having had nothing comes in, right? Because, like, I'm not obsessed with being rich or getting more money, or I'm just actually obsessed with winning and being right. So. I believe this is the right way to do this. I believe these are the right choices to make. I'm willing to accept it going wrong on my terms, but I'm not obsessed with, I don't know, like trying to compromise on every outcome because I don't want to go backwards one step. I'm like, no, no, we can go backwards five steps because I'm, I believe we'll go forward 10. And that come, that that courage comes from having nothing. I don't, I don't fear having nothing again. I've said this story a few times that there was one of the dragons then, I forgot her name, I think she was in Freight or something like that. She was only on there for a short amount of time. She was quite slim, skinny and dark hair. And she was being in, interviewed like, not in Dragon's Den, but like one of them sort of, you know, shoot off programs mm-hmm. about the, 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 the dragons in their sort of private business life. Anyway, she was overlooking like this lovely view and the guy went, oh, don't you ever get afraid that you could lose it all? And she said this really, really powerful statement. She said, I've come into life with nothing and I'll go out with life with nothing. Right. And every, everything in between is borrowed. Right. Right. And he was like, and right. it's true. Like yeah. All of us are coming into the life with nothing. Yeah. Even if you've got a rich family, you still come into it with nothing because right. it's you're just the raw version of you. You're yeah. just this, this yeah. brand new individual you make your mark on the world you get certain things in that time period which you're borrowing and then you go out and then you leave absolutely and i think i think if we can all sometimes think about that and live by that i think we'll be certainly a lot more happy and a lot more driven and you make you make better decisions like if you are making the decision because you don't want to lose your car you will make a different decision to if you just have the freedom to do what you think is right or your house or whatever like just and that's something i've always had like the, the clarity and the freedom of I just think this is the right thing to do and it's going to work. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Um, do you want to touch on telesales? Mm. So when the football career didn't happen, you went into telesales. Yeah. Did you ever think you were going to be in telesales? <laughs> no, no way. Absolutely not. I hated it. I hated it. It was horrible. Have you ever done telesales? I gave you the story earlier. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I, um, I got into telesales and I've got to tell you that it was... I found it my calling when I got there, but I I, I had no idea that that uh, sector even even existed. existed right. I had no idea. The yeah, moment I walked into a sales floor, I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is mental," <laughs> and I could feel the energy. And the guy, to my relief, said, "I don't," because I handed him my CV, yeah. and he went, "I don't care yeah. about that." CV isn't going to get your sales, it's your attitude. As long yeah. as you've got a good attitude, you will become successful. And that was yeah. the first time in my whole entire life I thought, oh my God, I didn't realise. Because I was taught by mum and dad, school teachers, if you don't get good grades, you'll never... Right. Well, my mum and dad didn't say that, that part, but the whole kind of right. philosophy back in the day was if you don't get good grades... You're doomed. You're, you're doomed. Yeah, you become yeah, fucked. Yeah. And... Um, that was a core belief for a long time. And then when I found sales, it was like, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter yeah. your, back, your background. Yeah. It doesn't matter. All ma- all that matters is your, your attitude yeah. and, and converting people over the telephone. So for me, it was a relief because I could, bec- now I felt like I could become successful without right. having the, the education, et cetera. Right. And I think that mindset of a salesperson is transferred to a lot of other businesses. Yeah. yeah. But for you, um, I heard in one of your podcasts, if you don't mind me sharing it, you actually cried for the first two weeks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I finished playing football where I, I enjoyed it every day. And now I'm in this windowless room. And it wasn't like windowless like this with nice art on the wall. It was just like a dungeon. And this uh, this telesales team lead who used to like stand over people and scream at them and like rip their phones out of the socket if they didn't do the pitch right or if they weren't hitting numbers. So I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> what the hell is this? And it was, I don't know, for like £5 an hour, £6. So it wasn't even that you were going to really change your life by being successful. It was, uh, yeah, it was horrible. But it must have given you some skills and some resilience in that in that sales environment. Did it give me anything? I don't, I think what it gave me was a moment to prove that 
I could go into an alien environment and be successful or, or like survive. That that's what it taught me. The thing the skills I used to win in that situation I had before I walked in the room and, and part of it was pride. You know, after the crying and people looking at me like I was, you know, a weirdo, pride kicked in. Um, logic kicked in to say, okay, it's telesales. You need to call people kind of before the day started, during lunch and after the after the day, and you get through to more people if you make calls at those times. So I kind of I did no calls between like nine and midday, and I did very little calls between two and five. I did my calls early middle of the day, and just you know those kind of quite common sense logical choices. And I am I'm okay to pitch. I, I kind of figured it out, you know, mm. but it was hard. Mm. <laughs> Okay, so look, you've you've had a lot of success in your life. You're still, mate, you know, young, um, and plenty more years ahead of you. I mean, what does a guy that to the outside world appears like you've got everything now? How do you keep yourself motivated? And what is next? Um, the last, I would say, five years or more, I'm really interested in like what is my ceiling, like what, what. It sounds funny to say, like, what can't I do? Not say I can do everything, but what challenge do I take on that I can't uh, that I can't accomplish? I think the company we're running now can be truly a European market leader. I think it can be worth in excess of four billion euros. That would be kind of cool to do. You know, homeless to four billion is better than homeless to one billion. So I like that. We're doing a lot of community work at the moment, and a lot of investors have given me you know a lot of money to do amazing work in the community. So I'm interested in seeing. Like how far of an impact um, can that have? I was in a long conversation about maybe running for mayor of London, which I won't do, but that was kind of interesting to explore. So yeah, I'm just really excited about exploring where my potential maxes maxes out and seeing where that where that takes me. And at some point, I'll like work a lot less and just try and enjoy the rest of life. Mm. <laughs> I can see you keep yourself a good nick, mate. Uh, you know, with, the, with with you know training, etc. How important is keeping fit, healthy, wellness? How much of that does contribute towards your success? I do like to like. I feel better about myself if I'm physically in shape. But I feel the the, the training thing. The importance of the training thing for me is I don't have to do it. Oops. I don't. I don't have to train. Hmm. I train on my own terms. I can train as hard or as little as I want. So it's actually about conditioning my mind, right? Like at the beginning of a week when we're doing my schedule, we'll put three or four training sessions in the week. And in winter, I put training sessions at half past five in the morning. And people will say, but you don't have your first meeting maybe until like nine or 10, so you can train later. And I say, no, I want to see if I can go for dinner the night before with a client have a few glasses of wine, get home at midnight and get up at half past five in the morning when I absolutely don't have to. Like, do can I have, can I continue to have a mindset of choosing to do hard things on Sacrifice. my own terms? Yeah, I, I want to keep that mindset of hunger, determination, it's hard. You don't have to do it. Your life is beautiful now. Will, will you do it, Dean? Will, will you do it? And the embarrassment at like 25 past five in the morning when the alarm's going off and I'm going maybe I won't today, you know, maybe I'll train twice as hard tomorrow. The embarrassment in my mind, the mentality of going, okay, so you're one of those guys now. Are you one of those guys? Like, are you not going to get up at 5.30? And I get up and do it. If you can choose to do hard things on your own terms, then when hard things hit you that you weren't expecting, you don't worry about it. You just go, well, it's just, this is just another hard thing that I have to do. I think, uh, I think what embodies that is integrity, right? It's like being, in, you know, being, right. having integrity. Like, you're, you haven't got someone watching over you telling right. you what to do. Right. I remember watching that Who Dares Wins, you know, the SAS program it was many, many years ago. And um, I think it was that Ant Middleton at the time was on it. And he, he said uh, he got <clears throat> people to go around this assault course and there was hidden people, hidden cameras throughout this right. assault course. He said, right, what you got to do when you get to this station, you've got to do 25 burpees. When you go... Right. And they had to lap it about five times. And by the third, full flat, where everyone started feeling tired and they thought... I was looking right. at him, do five burpees. Right. And at the end, those people were pulled up and he said, this is what I mean. It's right. like, if you're going to be in the SAS in the army, in, in special forces, right. 
it's about having integrity for yourself and your team members. Right. And even if no one's watching you, you should be delivering. And because of that, you, you yeah. need to fuck off. Hundred percent, hundred. Like I heard a saying that you are who you are when no one's looking. And those moments of training. And the, the truth is, like, out of a hundred of those sessions, I won't do all a hundred. Like there were some where, where I, I just like I, I don't do it or I can't do it, which isn't good. But I'm still tough on myself with those ones, right? I'm still disappointed in myself. I'm still like. Okay, you know this isn't this isn't a good enough standard, but you're right. Like no one's no one's looking, and that is that is the ultimate measure of integrity. How do you behave when no one's looking and no one's going to find out? Like that's yeah, that's the ultimate. So if you were to label a couple of you know titles or characteristics or words that define a successful person, define you. What are they? That define me. Um, accountable. I don't blame anybody for anything. It was my fault I was homeless. You know, it was my fault I failed at football. Like I, I'm accountable for everything that happens to me. And there's a whole world that sometimes isn't helpful. Like, you know, there's there's racism and there's you know all kinds of things that don't help a person like me. But I'm responsible for everything that happens in my life. So I'd say accountability. Uh, I have high standards. You know, I, I if I'm gonna do ten push-ups, I do ten. If I get to eight, I'll do the other two. Like I have high high standards, um, and I'm competitive. Like I still, it still matters to me, you know, to to win. Like it's still, I still want to win. When I, when we sold Primavera, we sold it to Oracle. The, the CEO of Oracle at the time was a guy called Larry Ellison. At that time, Larry Ellison would have certainly been one of the top ten richest men on earth. Might have been top five. Like. Right, so incredibly successful guy. He um he turned up late for the meeting, which is a different funny story. When he did turn up and after the meeting we got talking a little bit, he talked about a company he was buying in order to compete with another company called IBM. And he like he was fairly engaged in the meeting we had with him. When he was talking about buying this other company to compete with IBM, the guy started bouncing off of the walls and he was like full of energy and full of stories and getting excited and laughing and giggling about competing with IBM. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why is it like why does he care? You know, like he's he's worth tens of billions of pounds. At the time Oracle would have been one of the top two software companies on earth. He was racing his yacht, like in the kind of annual yacht racing competition on TV. He was in the Iron Man movie. Like he'd cracked life. Like there was but he was like fully charged about buying another company to go compete and beat some other company. And it did something to me. It made me think, well, if 8 billion euros net worth in CEO of the largest or second largest software company on earth is still here at 7 p.m. wheeling and dealing, then you know what? I can I can probably get up and make a few calls tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, to us of, of this conversation, I know you reference a lot... Um, football you know the culture and also the spirit mm. that you got from back then and also from your from your upbringing um am i right in saying it was just your mum that brought, brought mm. you up yeah? Yeah. yeah um so like what does that mean like your upbringing so your upbringing and football both those those things combined kind of um helped you become this successful individual what does that actually mean yeah two two, two things so my mum single parent to call us a low-income family would be phrasing us as much richer than we were because we were like very, very, um, you know, very poor. Um, she she was or is disabled, and I never heard her complain. And I watched her work. I watched her get up early and work. I watched her. She can't walk. I watched her walk us to school. So it was normal, right? It's only as an adult looking back now, I go, I, I realize how incredible that was. But I watched that woman behave that way. So it means I show up because she always showed up. She never had excuses. She 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 always found a way. And I'm infinitely better off than she was. So how can I not? Right? How can I complain about how hard it is to raise my kids when I've got a wife, a nanny, tons of staff? To, like I, I could never possibly, do, do you know what I mean? So she's, she's put this thing in me of, against having zero you still work do well 
we like we had no money and she insisted we got A's. Like when we used to bring less than A's home, she was mortified. You would look at that situation now and just say, if these three kids can not die and come out into society as not threatening to society, that would be a success. For her, she was like, what is this B? <laughs> like, what, what the hell are you doing? So she just put this routine of you show up, you work and you be the best. And she had every reason to not be that, but that was her philosophy. So I, I think I've got that from her. And the failure from football was most helpful because, and I've said this before, like I became a bit of an outcast among my friendship group where they all were getting on and getting contracts. And I hated it. Like I hated being, you know, the guy on the outside of the group who wasn't playing football, who didn't have the money, who couldn't go on the holidays. I hated it. So that lit this well, that's never happening to me again. Like, I'm going to be in this group as one of the top people in this group. So those two things put a lot of drive in me. And sometimes I look at it and I think it's not, it might not be healthy. I don't know, it's been help, It's been helpful. It, it, we can debate if it's healthy. It's definitely been helpful. So for Tiro, part of the culture that you've instilled there is derived from your mum. Definitely. The team at Fortero will tell you how often I reference uh, I reference my mum. She I'd... needs a statue in there. <laughs> she, she needs a job. Uh, she she needs a job in there. I say things like, "This needs to be so clear, my mum can understand it." Like I'm always I'm always referencing her. But yeah. Okay, uh, boxing or football? Uh, football. Okay, Ronaldo. Ronaldo. <laughs> Ronaldo and Messi is a better player. Oh, better player. I like I like Ronaldo, the work ethic, less gift naturally gifted than Messi, conquered it in all different places. Yeah, I, I like Ronaldo. Who would win? Hopefully it happens, Anthony Joshua or Tyson Fury? AJ's my AJ's my guy, man. You can't make me do that. Who wins? AJ wins. I got like I have I got no choice. <laughs> He'll slaughter me. I think AJ's great. Unfortunately, I just don't think he's got the minerals to beat Tyson Fury. But he's going to be an entertaining fight. Hopefully that happens. Hopefully it happens. Lamborghini or Ferrari? Lambo. Why? Um, why? Bruce Wayne. Like the Lambo's like the Batmobile. And Bruce and Batman's my favourite superhero, I guess. <laughs> That's why. Richard Mill or Patek Philippe? Patek Philippe. Good stuff. All right. I just was curious about those those answers. Um, I really, really appreciate your time, mate. No, I'm pleasure. actually very, very happy I've connected with you finally. I don't know if you remember, I was at the uh, Kieran Richardson Birthday. fancy dress party <laughs> that wasn't a fancy dress party and I never got the memo. And I said to my missus, because she was the one quizzing me all the time, are you sure it's fancy dress? Are you sure yeah, it's yeah. fancy dress? And I had text Kieran when I was in the fancy dress shop and I said, uh, I took a photo of myself and my son with saying, oh, I was in fancy dress and I said, just making sure it's still on. They went, yeah, it's no theme. Uh, now okay. I've taken it as no theme as it's not movie theme or right, it's not sports right. theme or it's not Halloween theme it's, it's whatever just... fancy dress you want yeah, yeah. so anyway as I walked through those doors <laughs> I, I, she would have come in I had to pitch her on, 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 on the door for ages even the bouncer joined, joined in it was just me and this fellow just pitching my wife and I said do you know what here's the benefit everyone is going to know who we Who's are going to remember you. and we're going yeah. to get something good out of this and I would like to think this podcast is basically because of that yeah, I loved it I was like why is that guy dressed dressed like that but yeah you carried it you carried it well you carried it well <laughs> a few drinks and then you just own it didn't you <laughs> exactly exactly and um, one last question so I, i've come up with my own mantra for to install culture for me the team and mm. it's something i try and live by and this is how it goes be happy mm -hmm. never content mm -hmm. if i were to ask mr dean forbes what does be happy never content mean to you uh Continued positive disappointment. I say it at work all the time, which is kind of the same thing, right? Be positively disappointment, disappointed. I'm really proud we did that, but we can and should do more. I'm really proud proud we won. We should have won by a bigger margin. That's, that's a good mind state to have, I think. 
Amazing. Thank you very much for your time. You. I'm looking forward to seeing your next chapters. Uh, no doubt there'll be a film made of you one day and everything <laughs> else. On that note, is there any kind of books coming out or anything anything we should be looking out for that we can download and, and read or watch? Uh, we might do something with Netflix. That, that conversation just uh, just started. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, but it's an honour to even be in the conversation. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Powerful. Okay. Thank you very much, very much for your time. Subscribe, comment, do all that good stuff. And remember to be happy, never content. Thank you very much, Dave. Cheers, mate.